The following audio is from a sermon series entitled Psalms, The Anatomy of the Soul. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. Hear the word of the Lord from Psalm 32. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Selah. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Selah. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when it may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. Selah. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Many are the woes of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. This is the word of the Lord. Welcome to all of you guys today. Uh, as Sam already said, I'm Alex Arguello. I'm a missional community co-leader as well as a deacon here at the church. Also, I'm an elder candidate. I'm in the process of training to be an elder with the hopes of being instituted as an elder in the next one to two years. Unlike most of the men that preach here on Sundays, I'm not on staff at the church. My vocation is in healthcare as a chiropractor. I have an office over in Moline, Illinois side called Great River Family Chiropractic. We specialize in wellness care for families. It's my passion to, to teach people how to get healthy and stay healthy. As many of you know, I know a lot of you are patients in the office, and some of you have just checked the office out. And something that's kind of cool is there's a lot of, of my patients here today that are, that are checking Sacred City out. So praise God for that. and want to welcome you guys for being here. The chiropractor thing actually is something interesting and something that I, I've been trying to figure out about Pastor Justin. You see, right now we have Dr. Tom Lyons, who is the other elder at the church right now with Justin. And then he's asked myself a doctor. Chiropractors are doctors. I hope you guys knew that. We're, we're witch doctors, but we're doctors, right? But he's asked myself and, and Dr. Jesse Walden, another witch doctor, to also pursue eldership. So that means that there's potential for three doctors as elders alongside Justin. So if you look at his missional community as well, he has like three or four doctors with him there, I believe. So this dude loves doctors for some reason. I'm trying to figure it out. I mean, I, I know Justin well, but I, this is something that I have not been able to figure out about him. I'm thinking that Justin is either one of those end times type of guys. You know, the guys that build the bunkers and collect a bunch of food and water so that they're prepared for the end of the world. Now he's trying to get his medical staff together or something to prepare for that. I don't think he's that weird, so what I'm hoping is that he's looking ahead of that to the new heavens and the new earth. So if you know anything about the new heavens and the new earth, it's going to be perfect there. 
everything wrong about this world is going to be made right in that world. So that means there's going to be no need for preaching God's word. There's going to be no need for pastoring people. So Justin's not going to have a job anymore. So I'm thinking maybe he's trying to get around other dudes that are also not going to have jobs anymore, like doctors, because there's going to be no pain or sickness or need for health restoration. So I don't know if he's got an idea of what we're going to do. I mean, I'm hoping it's something like construction or maybe we're going to be a coaching staff or something like that. But knowing Justin, he's probably thinking boy band. (laughs) You think Dr. Tom could be in a boy band? What do you think? (laughs) We're not in the new heavens, the new earth yet. So I have some work to do here still. And the rest of my work that God has given me to do is as a husband to my wife, Emily, and as a father to my five children, Tatum, Creighton, Micah, Keller, and Graham. You guys probably thought I was going to mess those up, didn't you? (laughs) But we love Sacred City. We see it as our family, and we've been here for the past four years now. And that really started when I met Justin one day at a gym. And since that day, we've really built our relationship. And our relationship has kind of been built on mainly two things. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ and something called CrossFit. Now, if you guys haven't heard of CrossFit, it's just a type of working out that me and Justin both love to do. But we, you're either seeing us talk about Jesus or we're working out. Now, I believe that I was a Christian prior to meeting Justin and coming to Sacred City, but it was Justin that really helped me to understand who God really is, uh, who I was before knowing God, and then now who I am as a disciple of Jesus Christ. He's helped me to develop a good theology. He's taught me how to study the Bible. He's really discipled me. So again, like I said, if we're not talking about Jesus, then we're probably working out. Now, why am I telling you those two things? Well, I want you guys to get to know me a little bit, you know, who I am, what I do, how we got here. But those two things are also going to be beneficial for you guys today. The first one more so, right? He's discipled me. It's the gospel that's really caused me to be up here today and want to preach to you and want to preach to you in a biblically based way and centered on the gospel as opposed to my opinion being given today and centered on all of you by trying to motivate you or make you feel better about yourself. You know, I know that's what people want when they come here on Sundays, but we don't need motivation when we come on Sundays. We need Jesus when we come on Sundays. So that's my hope that I would bring that to you guys today. But the CrossFit thing actually benefits you guys as well, because if you will know about CrossFit at all, what we do is we come up with a certain amount of exercises for the day and we call that work. And we say, we're going to try to do this work as fast as we possibly can. So what I've been doing for the past four years is I've been, we've been taking a certain amount of work and I've been trying to do that work faster than Justin for the past four years. So when we look at what we have to do today, we have work to do, right? And if Justin was here, he'd be doing the exact same work. But because of this desire that I have to do things faster than Justin, that means this sermon's not going to take two hours like it would if he was here. <laughs> at least that's not the hope anyway. But it's definitely uh, been an honor to do all of this, to study and prepare for the sermon. It's definitely given me a a greater appreciation for the men that do this on a regular basis. This sermon um, prep has been very challenging for me, um, but it's also been very good for my soul. Uh, God's done a lot of good stuff, as Sam already said, and I've had some good conversations with people that I should have had before and uh, done some things differently in relationships that... uh, it really, again, has been, it been good for me. So my hope today, as I'm communicating this, and I'm going to open up, I'm going to share a lot of things with you guys today about myself. I hope that um, that comes across, um, that I have been changed, that God has done a good work, and, and that he would do a similar work in all of you guys. What we've been doing here is going through a series called The Anatomy of the Soul. What we're doing is we're preaching through the Psalms 
in addressing feelings that we all experience in life or what Chip Dodd calls in this book, the voice of the heart. At at Sacred City, what we're hoping is that we would make disciples of Jesus Christ. And what that means is we want to see people come under the lordship of Christ, trust in him as their redeemer, and follow him in his way. So we want to listen to Jesus. And one of the things that Jesus said in John 10.10 is that he came so that his sheep, which is another way of saying his disciples, would have life and have it abundantly. I think that's probably a life that we all would like to have. And that's a life that we want you guys to have. So what we have to do then is answer the question is, how do we have this life abundantly? What does that look like? And I think we've been doing a pretty good job here at Sacred City of explaining that to you guys in the past series that we've had, a series called The Sacred Life and another one called Happy. But I think this answer needs more. So our job for this series is to hopefully make that answer more complete by explaining how different feelings that we have in our life have to do with that abundant life. You see, if what Chip Dodd in his book says is true, and we believe it is because we see the Psalms supporting it, we as believers, and even not yet believers, can't live this abundant life that Jesus talks about if we're not able to feel deeply and express these feelings properly. This is true because God created us as emotional beings. God created us with the soul and feelings are part of that soul. We see in scripture that the soul is made up of our mind, will, and emotions. Now I know that there's these personality profile descriptions out there. Sam referenced it last week that say we're either feelers or we're thinkers. And I think those things, those things can be helpful, but they're not necessarily describing how we should be as God's image bearers. Many people tend to totally disregard their feelings if they're labeled as a thinker, or they see a license to indulge in their emotions if they're labeled as a feeler. But as humans, we were created to think, to choose, and to feel. And if we're not, then we're really not being human. We're not experiencing this life the way God intended. What's amazing is God intended for us to have an amazing life, an abundant life from the beginning. We see this in the Garden of Eden, where, Adam, where God placed Adam and Eve after he created them. Everything about that place was, as God said, very good. Our first parents, we know that they had everything that they needed for a full, abundant life. And the most important thing that they had, more so than food, drink, or any other resource God gave them, was an intimate relationship with the triune God and with each other. We just sit and meditate on that for a little bit. A few months ago in our happy series, if you aren't with us, you can listen to that on podcast, but we learned that God is absolutely happy in himself. That there was this wonderfully perfect joy filled relationship between the three persons of the Trinity, the father, the son, and the Holy spirit. And God had no need for humans or the rest of creation at all. God doesn't need anything from us to add to his happiness. So that means that the only reason he had to create us was because he wanted to share what he had. And he wanted us to join him in that wonderfully perfect joy filled relationship. That's why you're here. That's the abundant life that we're hoping this series points you to. It's not achieving the American dream. It's not being successful and financially secure and having a lot of stuff like so many of us are drawn towards. It's not even being 
healthy and comfortable and having no suffering in your life. Like I know I'm drawn towards. It's an amazing, abundant life with the triune God and with each other. I love how the story formed way, which is a curriculum that we go through in our missional communities that a lot of you are familiar with, how they put what Adam and Eve had. It says daily, God would come and spend time with the humans, walking with them in the cool of the day. He showed them how to live the best possible way, a life lived close to God and under his protection, a life that is full and complete. I think we would all take that. That's where humans started. An abundant, full, complete life because of the relationship with God and with each other. They had no need for anything else to fulfill them. But in Genesis 3, as many of you know, that all changed. Our first parents fell into sin and creation was cursed and relationships were fractured. Humans no longer had the relationship with God that he wanted with them. And because of the sin that Adam and Eve committed, them and now us not, do not deserve an abundant life, but no life at all. That's because God in his word tells us that the penalty of sin is no life at all. It's death. That's a huge turn of events. Humans have an amazing, fulfilling relationship with God, and he provided them with everything that they absolutely needed, but because they were deceived into thinking that they could do better without God, they lose this intimate relationship with him and now deserve to die. Talk about a bad day. But right away, after the fall, we see that we have reason to worship God, just like we'll see David do in Psalm 32 today. We can worship him because he not only doesn't give them what they deserve, but he does more than that. And he gives them feelings that are meant to direct them. And now us back toward him and back towards the abundant life that he wants us to experience. All of these feelings that he gives us are meant for our good. But what else happened after the fall is now all humans since that day struggle with their feelings. And we don't see them as tools that point us back to God. Some of us are ruled by our emotions. We see them as king. Others hate emotions. They hurt too much. So we stuff them down deep and we try to ignore them. For the Christian, neither of these two extremes are where we want to be. And the reason that our lives are not abundant, maybe, is because we're not allowing our feelings to do what they are supposed to do and point us back to God. To use Chip Dodd's terminology in his book, the voice in our heart is not being listened to. And this results in suffering in our relationships. But as we'll see in our psalm today, if we do listen and we respond to these feelings properly, God will respond as well. The feeling that we're going to talk about today is guilt. So I want to first start with a definition. In his book, The Voice of the Heart, Chip Dodd describes it as the feeling we have when we actually do something wrong, and it's always about behavior toward another. Now, that behavior can be planned or that behavior can be acted on. So the two things we see here are guilt comes from something we do or at least think about doing that we should not, and second, it involves another, so it's relational, postmodern culture where everyone swears that it's up to them to determine what's right 
and what's wrong because they don't have a, an authority over top of them that can determine that for them, there seems to be a big decline in the amount of people or at least the amount of things that we feel guilty over nowadays. So although our culture is finding less and less to feel guilty over, I would venture to guess that those of us in this room that have one above us that determines what's moral and what's not experience guilt quite often. Even those people that would say that they don't have an authority like the Bible to tell them what's right and wrong have to feel guilt at some point. We know this because in the Apostle Paul's letter to the Romans, we see that God has made what can be known about him plain. So that means people, atheists and believers alike, know God's righteous decree that those who sin against him deserve to die. So what that means is God being the creator of all things, created people with a knowledge of him, and to some degree, they know his moral standards. Scripture even tells us that he has written his laws in people's hearts. And that if we break those laws, again, we deserve no life at all. Here's where it gets scary. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So all of us sin against and wrong other people all the time. And if we still want to tell ourselves that we do not wrong other people, well, if we've done one little sin at any time in our life, then we've sinned against and wronged God. That means we're all guilty. And if that's true, then it's only natural to feel it. We probably know this, that we're all guilty. We know what we think when we see people who annoy us, right? You know, the people that never bring anything to MC dinner. And if they do, it's a half a bag of chips, right? We know what we think about those people. What else do we have? Do we gossip? Do we withhold truth? Are we lazy? Do we covet? Are we resentful towards people when we think they've wronged us? Any of these things give us a guilty standing before God and the person that we are committing these sins against. We are all guilty. But if we can bring these experience that we have with feeling guilty, with the biblical proof that God created us with feelings, then we can imply that guilt is a feeling that God wants us to experience. That doesn't mean he wants us to sin. He hates sin, but he knows that we're going to sin. So he gives us this feeling of guilt and wants us to experience it because it can lead us to a deeper relationship with him and with the people that he's put in our life. Just like back in the garden, guilt is a gift that can lead us to grace. The problem is we don't see it as a gift. We don't understand how it can lead us to grace. To know this, all we have to do is ask the question, what do we do when we feel guilty? Do we justify? My kids are great at this. My boy, one of my boys will, will hit one of his brothers, and when I find out about it, we have the conversation about how that's wrong to do, immediately I get, but he hit me first. And that literally could have been three weeks ago that he was hit, but he's willing to use it to justify hitting his brother at this particular time. Do we blame when we feel guilty? We say something hurtful to a spouse or to a friend and then blame it on the lack of sleep that we've been getting or not getting or the stress that we've been under at work. Do we compare? 
If a brother or sister sees something in our life that's not in step with the gospel, like how we're treating our spouse or maybe how we're disciplining or, or not disciplining our children, and they lovingly call us out, and instead of seeing that as a gift and the guilt that we're feeling as a gift, do we start to think things like, is this person really calling me out of my sin? I mean, I've seen how they treat their spouse. I've, I know how disobedient their kids are. We should be talking about their sin, not my sin. We start to compare ourselves to other people and see that they do things worse than we actually do. Again, because we don't like this feeling of guilt. Are we a minimizer? I know I am. Thankfully, others in my life have made me aware of this, and I have been able to do some change in my life. But when we identify sinful tendencies at Sacred City, we like to label them. The reason we want to label them is because when our brothers and sisters see it happening, they're able to address it easier. You probably heard Justin talk about how he's the wrestler. Well, they call me the cool cat. The cool cat name comes from my tendency to always make things appear that everything is all together, that everything's cool. My wife could be totally stressed out and overwhelmed because our kids are going nuts or because our business is not going the way that it should be. But I wouldn't show any emotion at all, even though I've seen the same exact thing that she's seen. Now, my cool catness would become sinful in plenty of different ways, but most importantly, it becomes sinful when I need to take action so that my wife is not feeling overwhelmed and she's not stressed out, or at least I would recognize that it's happening and tell her that it's affecting me too, instead of just being stone cold and emotionless. But when that happens, I don't, I still remain like everything is cool. Now, thankfully, Justin has seen this many times in my life and he's called me out on it. And when he did it at the beginning, I would of course minimize because I didn't like how I was feeling about the guilt and he would let me. But then one day, He looked at me dead serious as I'm trying to laugh it off. And I maybe said something like, yeah, I should probably work on that, shouldn't I? He said, sin is not funny. You are a husband who's supposed to be laying your life down for your wife, and you are not. Now, I'm not a war guy. I don't know much about it. But apparently, when soldiers are moving forward in battle, there could be things like barbed wire laying on the ground. And some of the soldiers will actually lay down on that barbed wire so that the rest of Soldiers can walk over it comfortably, safely. They make that sacrifice. Oh, what Justin told me is instead of doing that for my wife and family, what I'm doing is I'm throwing Emily on top of that barbed wire so that I can walk over it comfortably. That affected me. That actually made me feel more guilty because I realized that, man, this is happening, but I'm just trying to minimize because I don't like the feeling of guilt. It made me feel more guilty, and I realized I was minimizing my guilt, which made me want to change. I was failing to do my job as the leader of the house, and she was being negatively affected by it, and I would just act like it wasn't a big deal. Try having a good marriage when that's going on. My sin was hurting our relationship, and that's where we were at until I could stop minimizing my feeling of guilt and admit my sin so that it could be addressed. Now, although I still struggle with cool cat tendencies, thankfully now I'm 
made aware of it, and I can minimize far less. But these are all things we talked about are all ways of trying to avoid the feeling of guilt. And I'm sure there are many more that we could talk about, but some of you didn't resonate, excuse me, with any of those because you swing to the other side, right? You actually recognize that you are guilty. You understand it and you accept it. But what you do is you stay in it and you sulk and you go from feeling just guilty to what Chip Dodd calls toxic shame. This is where you start to see yourself as unworthy of God's love and acceptance. And then others love and acceptance. You wrong someone and maybe at first you try to work yourself out of the guilt, but you can't. After this, you may start to isolate yourself from relationships or worse. Think about taking your own life because the weight of the guilt is too much. Well, both of these responses are wrong. No matter which side of the horse we fall off on hiding our guilt or sulking in our guilt We are choosing not to see guilt as a gift of grace. And if we do that, we will struggle with relationships and miss out on the abundant life that God wants for us. Now, I think I've probably used all of those responses throughout my life at different times. And one of the things that I realized when I was preparing for this sermon was how much of a guilt-driven person I am. So many things that I do in my life are to try to avoid the feeling of guilt or get out of it if I am guilty. I either choose one of the remedies that we've already talked about, or I do what secular psychology would teach and try to make up for the wrong that I've done by trying to do good things. Some of you might do the same. They've even done done studies that show that this is a powerful way of getting out of feeling guilty. But what I've seen in my life that there are times when I have wronged somebody, felt guilty for it, but because I hate the feeling of guilt more so than I love the person that I have wronged, I do whatever I can to just get away from the feeling. It's something I didn't realize until preparing for this sermon is by doing that, I have prevented intimacy in my relationships. I've seen this in a number of my relationships, but pretty clearly with my in-laws. Let's just say my relationship with them didn't start off on a great note. In college, Emily and I were sinning sexually prior to being married, and this resulted in Emily getting pregnant with our first son, Tatum, during our junior year. Now, Emily was an awesome young woman. Now she's an even more awesome, less young woman. But she was a great student in college. She was on her way to medical school after graduation. She was a two-sport athlete. She was involved in a number of different leadership organizations on campus. She would have undoubtedly made any set of parents very proud I don't even know if she got a parking ticket to that point in her life. So to learn one night that this daughter of yours that you see doing very well and that you want the best for is now pregnant because of a sinful relationship with a 20 year old foolish boy that you didn't even know had to be tough to say the least. Emily's parents were very upset and hurt and understandably so. They deserve my repentance for what I've contributed to the situation, but that's not what they got. And thinking back on it for the past 12 years, even though that didn't happen, I wouldn't say that my relationship with them has been bad at all, but it's been far from intimate. And what I realized, a lot of the reason that's the case is because 
there was still this tension between us. There was still this wall up between me and them. And that probably is at least partially because I never admitted my guilt. I was too weak and too scared to do that. And I never repented for what I did to contribute to the daughter's life changing forever. I recently did repent to them and it was good for my soul. But what I was doing before that, instead of repenting was trying to make up for the hurt I caused them by trying to prove to them that I was a decent man. And all the, although by their words, this eased their pain a great deal because I was trying to prove myself with being good. I was never really able to let them into my bad to my ugliness and if you can't do that in relationships, then there can't be any relation, intimacy in that relationship. We all have bad. We all have ugliness and wickedness about us. And if we're in relationships with people, that ugliness is going to wrong them. It's going to hurt them. But if we try to hide it for fear of not being accepted like I was doing with my in-laws, then intimacy won't be experienced. That's what I want us to see today. The longer we live without listening to guilt and correctly responding, the more we miss out on amazing relationships with the people that we have wronged. And that includes God. When it comes to guilt, if we aren't allowing ourselves to feel it, we miss out on one of the most beautiful gifts God and others can give us. One of the main things that is required in order for in order for us to experience intimacy with God. And that's forgiveness. Without forgiveness, there's no intimacy in relationships with God and the others that we have wronged. Without intimacy in those relationships, there's no abundant life. We see this in the text today. We're going to look at the life of King David in one of his Psalms and see the correct response to guilt and how it leads to forgiveness and hopefully see how it leads to more of a full life. So if you could open up your Bibles to Psalm 32, we're going to finally get to our text today. As you're doing that, I'm going to kind of prepare us for this psalm a little bit. The psalm, if you look at it, it's in the top of your Bible. It descri- it's described as a maskal of David. Now, we don't know exactly what the word maskal means, but what most scholars believe is that it's meant to be instructional in nature. It seems that David wrote this psalm in response to something that he has experienced in his own life for the purpose of sharing this experience with his people so that they and future readers could learn from it and be encouraged to respond the right way in similar situations. As we read this psalm, we see very clearly that David has done something that he's not supposed to do, and he's feeling guilty. We don't know exactly what David is referring to, but let's just take a survey of some of the sins that David could be responding to that we know of, and I'm going to read this pretty quickly. The Bible tells us that he neglected his role as king and leader of the army. Kings lead their men out into battle, but David was staying home relaxing while many of his men were perishing. He coveted another man's wife as he seen her bathing from his rooftop. He then proceeded to bring her home to him and force her to have sex with him, thus committing sexual immorality and adultery in the same act. He didn't stop there. After realizing that Bathsheba was pregnant, he brought her home, her husband Uriah home, taking one of the best soldiers away from the army, which probably resulted in even more of his men dying. And when David tried then to get Uriah to go sleep with his wife to try to cover up the mess that he created, his plan didn't work. So then he tried to get Uriah drunk and then have him go sleep with his wife, but that didn't work either. 
Finally, he ordered Uriah's death so that he could take Bathsheba as his own wife. That's a lot of sin. And I think it's important that we see how much sin it is and how awful that sin was for a couple reasons. First, for the people that feel guilty all the time and are overwhelmed with your guilt, you know that you are a sinner and that your sin really, really hurts people. You might even be in one big sin right now and you can't fight it. And the feeling of guilt is crushing you. You could be moving towards not just feeling guilt, but as we mentioned before, toxic shame. Because you're telling yourself that you should be better than this. But you can't change, so you've given up. If that's you, I hope that seeing David, a man after God's own heart, has a pretty bad track record himself. But he doesn't give up. Secondly, there's another crowd in here that maybe doesn't resonate with David's sins. You are, in your mind, a pretty good person. You're a faithful church attender. You're ethical and moral. You would never think about committing adultery, let alone murder. So it's pretty easy then to think and tell yourself that your sins aren't that big of a deal. A little dishonesty, a lack of generosity, lustful thoughts, idolization of your kids or your spouse or your job aren't even on the same level as what David did or maybe what your neighbors do. So you start to tell yourself, I don't have anything to feel guilty over. That's a dangerous place to be. And what my hope is for you in this text is that you would see that if you don't experience your need for forgiveness, then you can't and will never experience the joy that comes from receiving it. Experiencing that joy is a big part of enjoying God and living an abundant life with and for him. That's something that many Christians need to hear all the time, especially if you grew up in the church and have been doing this a while, because we start to forget that in order for the gospel to be good news for you, there has to be bad news first, right? Jesus came to save sinners, not the righteous, not the people who want to pretend like you have it all together all the time. Now, please hear me. This doesn't mean that we have to go and manufacture some bad news and start sinning all of the time. We don't have to do that for forgiveness to be sweet because if we can just really look in at our life and see it, we're already sinning all the time. So forgiveness should already be sweet to us. In fact, the more holy we become, the more we look like Christ and are able to fight our sin better, we actually should see more clearly the wickedness that we have within us and therefore our dire need for forgiveness. That's the direction that Davis wants to, David wants to point us in today. Let's go ahead and look at the first two verses. He said, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man whom the Lord counts no iniquity, whose spirit there is no deceit. Now David is not just making a statement here for our instruction, like some dry statement that we need just for head knowledge. This is meant to affect our hearts. How this really should be read is, oh, the blessedness of the one, or how happy the one. David is rejoicing. He's worshiping here. That's interesting. Here we see David, after all of these sinful acts where he ruined lives and distanced himself from God, saying that if your sins are forgiven, you will experience great joy. 
How does he know such a thing? Well, he tells us in the next three verses. Verse three, for when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of the summer. David transitions here to a personal account and gives us a picture of what committing a sin and not bringing that sin out into the open will do to a person. When he avoided confessing his sin, when his desire to avoid the feeling of guilt was greater than his love for the person that he committed that sin against, there was no joy. There was physical, mental, emotional turmoil in his life. His feeling of guilt was completely exhausting him. He was tired, anxious, negative, even physically sick. The best way to say it is he was absolutely miserable because of his guilt. Have you ever felt like this before? Some of you have. Some of you may be there right now. If you are, please know that you don't have to stay there. You don't have to pretend like everything is fine or talk yourself into your exhaustion and accepting it as the way it's going to be. Look at the gift of grace that David shows us in verse 5. I acknowledged my sin to you, that's God, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord in the big part of this verse. You forgave me the iniquity of my sin. What just happened? David went from being miserable to, as he said in the beginning, blessed or full of joy. How do you get there? He stopped hiding his guilt or sulking in it, whatever we're doing, and decided to confess it. And this wasn't a reluctant confession. You know, a confession that we do because we know that that's what our religion asks of us. It wasn't a confession like my kids do and just do it because they know they're going to be disciplined if they don't. This was a, this was a confession that was from the heart. Remember in verse two, he says, in whose spirit, there's no deceit. That's saying that this is a true confession from a heart that's not deceiving itself and lying about truly being broken over your guilt. It's from a heart that knows it's wicked and from a heart that knows that it can do nothing to change that. That's the correct response to the feeling of guilt. There's no other way out of it that brings one to joy. Accept your guilt, confess it, and receive the sweet forgiveness that God wants for you. That should be great news. For those of you that are feeling the weight of your guilt and searching for the way out, but I hope it's also great news for those of us in here that don't want to see their guiltiness. David doesn't say blessedness comes from being a good person. David doesn't say blessedness comes from following most of the rules most of the time. David says it comes from being forgiven. Forgiveness covers the wrongdoing. It wipes clean the record of dirtiness for the one who doesn't try to cover it on their own, but confesses it. You see, that's why David can say and even sing about here, the one who confesses and is forgiven is happy. Forgiveness is given to someone who doesn't deserve it. If you wrong someone, you deserve to be wronged back. But forgiveness is saying, I'm not going to wrong you back. I'm going to wipe the slate clean so that our relationship 
can be restored. It's an act of love. Being loved by someone when you don't deserve it is what happens when you are forgiven. If that doesn't make us happy and make us want to love that person back, then I don't know what will. Forgiveness is very sweet, but it's also hard to believe. A lot of us think that being open with our sin will not, not make us full of joy. It will make us feel worse. We think that if we keep our sin hidden or that we can justify our way out of it, it'll go well for us. This is because we think if people really knew how bad we were, then nobody would accept us. That's the relationships, unfortunately, most of us have. These surface level relationships where we're always trying to figure out how far we can really go with a person before they know enough about us where they won't want to be in relationship with us anymore. We might think the same thing about God. We tell ourselves that he doesn't already know everything, so we don't even bring our real selves to him. We hope we can hide our real selves and it not result in a stale relationship with him. But that's what will happen. We maybe already know this about relationships. The best and the most intimate relationships, I would guess, that you have, the ones that bring you the most joy, are the ones with people who know you the most and still love and accept you. If people don't know the real you with all your brokenness and messiness, then they might like you. They might even love and accept you to a degree, but they're not loving and accepting the real you. So that relationship has no intimacy. If someone does know the real you, but you've wronged them. So they've experienced some of your sinfulness, then they might not accept you either. And they may even have ill feelings towards you. That also results in no intimacy. It either stays surface level because they're too afraid to confront you about you wronging them or the relationship ends altogether. These aren't the relationships we're called to have, nor the ones we should want, especially with the people God's put in us into close proximity to, like our spouses, our kids, our parents, our MC family, even our coworkers and neighbors. I can see this in my own life. Prior to Sacred City and learning the freedom that Christians have in the gospel to be open and real about our dirtiness, I had few to no intimate relationships. Relationships for me were more about what a person can do for me, and if that wasn't any good, then I saw no need to invest in that relationship. So outside of my parents, my siblings to a degree, some childhood friends, and of course Emily, I had nothing of intimacy. Even those relationships, again, were only intimate to the point that they knew me and accepted me. My friends knew me a little and they accepted me. So there was a little intimacy there. My siblings knew me more and accepted me. At least they never told me they didn't. So there was a little more intimacy there. My parents know me a lot. My mom tells me of stories. When I was done with my bottle as a baby, I would throw it at her face, but she still loves and accepts me. So there's more intimacy there. But of course, the person that knows me the most and loves and accepts me the most is Emily. So that's the most intimate earthly relationship that I have. You probably already knew that when I said I had five kids. <laughs> I hope you're getting what I'm trying to say here. The abundant life Jesus came to bring us is about intimate relationships. 
Intimate relationships come from being known and still accepted and loved. If you have wronged someone, including God, there is a fracture in that relationship and you feeling guilty about it is a gift of grace. It's not something to push away. David shows us what not, not only will destroy you physically, mentally, spiritually, but you will also miss out on this full life of relationships God wants for you. Embrace the guiltiness. Truly confess it and receive forgiveness. You say, but I've done too much. Do you remember David? Chip Dodd says the deeper the harm before forgiveness, the deeper the relationship can be when forgiveness is granted. Don't think it's too late. Don't think you've done too much. Don't give up on relationships. You say, but the person I wronged won't forgive me. That's not on you. You're not in control of that. Still confess it because God wants to forgive you. He knows you the most and he loves and accepts you the most. If your faith is in him, guilt should lead to confession. Confession should lead to forgiveness and forgiveness can lead to deeper, more intimate relationships. That's what David is showing us here. Remember one of the purposes of this Psalm was to instruct us. So we see in verse six that he wants us, his readers to follow his lead. Verse six, therefore, let everyone who is godly, that word godly there means everyone who believes they are a sinner and wants relief from that sin because they know that they can do nothing to bring that relief. Therefore, everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. As he's still speaking to God, he lets us know that forgiveness from God is available to us as well. What's interesting here is he seems to be saying that there is a time limit on that forgiveness. He says that there's a time when God may be found, which means that there's a time when God may not be found. He gives a warning here for those of us that are trying to avoid the guilt, just like he did. Everyone in this room is guilty before God and needs forgiveness. The consequence of that guilt is not only an empty life here, but also eternal death, which means eternity without the relationship that God created us for. Remember, if we have wronged someone and hurt someone, specifically God, we deserve to be wronged back. We have to see that. God gives us the feeling of guilt as a gift of grace, but if we don't receive it as a gift of grace, there will be a day when the rush of great waters comes and our prayers of confession will not reach him. Don't miss it. Your lives will suffer now and you'll absolutely suffer in the future. Verse seven shows us what life is like if we haven't missed it. You're a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. In an intimate relationship with God, that is what we receive. Contrast that with what David was saying about God while he was trying to avoid confessing his guilt. Your heavy hand was upon me, and because of this, my bones were wasting away and my strength was dried up. Which of these states would you like to be in? Being hidden in times of distress, being preserved from the trouble when needed, and having the God of the universe shouting that you're free of your guilt or his heavy hand on you, zapping you of your physical, mental, and emotional strength. Some of us may not even know that we're in a state of being under God's heavy hand, but we see here if we aren't confessing and receiving forgiveness, that's where we are at. 
And it's just a matter of time before we start to experience the pain and exhaustion that we see here with David. Again, don't wait for it. Take heed of David's counsel. Again, that's one of the reasons he wrote the psalm, and we see that in the next three verses. Verse 8, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Now, this might be David continuing to speak, but what it seems like is the Lord himself has chosen to spoke to speak to David and to the other worshipers. But either way, there's more instruction for us to learn from. There are encouraging words in there. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. There are direct commands and admonitions. Be not like a horse or a mule that's forced to stay near me. There's a proverb like statement. Many are the sorrows of the wicked but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. All of these are for our good. All of these are to lead us away from avoiding our feelings of guilt or sulking in them and leading us into trusting that confession will take us to forgiveness and an abundant life. But I want to get to the last verse as I move towards closing. Because so far we've looked at some really good stuff. We've taken what David has shown us in the psalm and combined it with what Chip Dodd tells us about guilt in his great book, but hopefully you have seen that something has been missing. And what's awesome is what's missing is the best news of all. You see, David closes this psalm with a summon to praise the Lord, which is exactly what I want to close this sermon with. Verse 11 says, be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. David is speaking appropriately here. He's praising God himself by just saying this, but he's also directing his audience in the right direction. I want to do the same today. And I believe that as Christians, we have even more to praise God for than even David and his people did. You see, David is out of misery and loving life at this time because, as he said, his blessedness or happiness that he was experiencing. This happiness didn't come from forgetting about his guiltiness or from doing good deeds to get out of the bad deeds that he did. This happiness only came from forgiveness. And since first and foremost, like David tells us in another one of his Psalms, Psalm 51, his sins were committed against the Lord alone. That means forgiveness first and foremost, has to come from the Lord alone. Now, David knew confessing his sins led to forgiveness from God, but he didn't know why confessing his sins led to forgiveness from God. You see, all David knew was a sacrificial system. So he would confess his sins, and then an animal sacrifice would be made for his sins, and God would accept that as payment for that sin, because remember, payment for sin is death, And this is something that would have to happen over and over and over again because we sin over and over and over again. But here's why Christians can be glad and rejoice more so than David. What we know being where we're at in history is that a once and for all sacrifice has been made. We know that a descendant of David named Jesus Christ left heaven and came to us and lived a perfect life, never experiencing any guilt of his own. But for his glory and out of love for us, he took on all of our guilt, including David's. And then he was murdered on a cross to pay for it so that we, the real guilty ones, wouldn't have to. He was the sacrifice. 
We wrong God, deserve to die, but Jesus dies for us so that we can be forgiven. That's the gospel. That's the good news. Why does confession lead to forgiveness? Because of that news, because of that man, Jesus Christ. Why does forgiveness lead to happiness and an abundant life? Because by grace, through faith in Christ, our relationship is restored with the God that created us, just like he always wanted. The Bible says we go from being God's enemies to God's friends. Jesus makes this psalm true. Jesus makes forgiveness that we need possible. Will we praise him for it? Will we start praising him for the feelings of guilt that we have, knowing that he has us feel them because he wants to draw us into an amazing, intimate relationship with him? You want an amazing life? That's where it starts. Yes, properly experiencing and expressing guilt and other emotions is important for us to experience an amazing relationship with the people in our life, but our life will still be incomplete and lack joy without Christ. It's the most important relationship we have. It's the one that we were created for. It's the one that needs to be restored and needs to be intimate. If it is, the rest of our relationships will follow. And so will the abundant life that we all want. One of my favorite pastors, Tim Keller, in his commentary on the book of Psalms, specifically Psalm 32, he says, the happiest people in the world, that's what we want, are the people who not only know they need forgiveness from God, but have also experienced it. Have you experienced this yet? If you haven't, I pray that the Holy Spirit will grant you that today. This is what the feeling of guilt is meant to lead us towards. Forgiveness from Christ so that we can see the glory and beauty of Christ. Christians, are you experiencing this continually? Only knowing the gospel theologically is not enough for an intimate relationship with Christ. We have to experience it. That's why Sundays are so amazing for us. We get to come here and recite the gospel in the liturgy, sing the gospel in the music, hear the gospel in the preaching, and proclaim the gospel with the Lord's Supper. All of it we see as means of grace that the Holy Spirit can use to give us a fresh taste of Jesus and his finished work so that we might experience that good news and be changed for our good and his glory. What would this city be like if this entire room was full of people that not only knew the gospel, but were experiencing it and being changed by it as well. Would more disciples be made? Would more churches be planted? Would this city be more renewed? I think so. And I think all of our lives would be more abundant if that was the case. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for grace. We thank you for being so good to your children. As we learn today, you created us to have this amazing relationship with you and with each other, but of course we messed it up. And we continue to mess it up. But by grace through faith, our relationship with you can be restored because of what Jesus has done on the cross for us. And if by faith... We believe in that. 
then our relationship is now so close that you say we are united with Jesus. We have union with him. We are one. It doesn't get any better than that. So now will you help us to experience it and be changed by it? Will you help us to fight stuffing our emotions? Help us fight avoiding the feeling of guilt and humble us so that we can be brought to confession. Father, we know that confession doesn't merit us any forgiveness. Jesus gives us that forgiveness. But confession is what you've chosen to allow us to experience it. Grant us that today, because we all need it. In Jesus' name, amen.